Hi, Nadine. Hello, Habiba. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thanks. How are you? I'm good. We're missing our third corner of our triangle. We miss her. Yeah. We miss you, Courtney. I told her that I would mention her in the episode and she said, don't do it too much or she'll have to stop listening. She said, don't be too kind. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we love her. Love you, Courtney. (laughs) Just going to get embarrassed like offline. (laughs) Hey, but I got T to say that you love her. She'll appreciate that. Well, she'll cackle actually as she's listening. So I have been doing, well, I just started actually, uh, Dana Schwartz's writing workshop on horror. And I did one class on Saturday and I found it so good. Like she is absolutely excellent. And the thing that I love most about it is that it's very hands-on. So we do a lot of like very practical stuff. And one of the exercises that we did was we got a little paragraph and we had to read it as writers. And I know that this is something that you and I do a lot. um, And like people in our close writing circles do a lot. We read each other's work. We critique each other's work. We read books. We read books together and then talk about, oh, this was really great. And look how they did this. But as I did the exercise, I started thinking about how we kind of got into that process. We fell into it very naturally, I think. But it does take a while, I think, to kind of find your hooks in, dig your claws in, I guess, to how to get that going and how to feel like you're actually reading as a writer and what that even means. And I did get a sense that, you know, some people had never done that before. And I thought it would be really fun to talk about that and to do some cool examples, which I'm excited about. I love that. Yeah, because it's, it's sort of second nature now, but we've been doing it for so long where we read each other's writing and make comments on it. So I'd love to hear how they did in the workshop, if you don't mind sharing a little bit with the the excerpt or if they had like a specific routine of what you look for first or if different people brought different experiences and so looked at different things and then I have some examples too. So I don't remember offhand exactly where the excerpt is from. One thing that I thought was really excellent about the way that we approached it, it wasn't like what you do in high school where like you look at the thing and you're like what is the symbolism and what is the like the significance of this specific word being used here? We approached it actually from the angle of what is the emotion that this evokes when you read it? Because that is what the reader is going to walk away with. You can forget names. You can forget. There's a, this is a saying, actually. I think Maya Angelou said this. She said, uh, people will forget what you said. They will forget what you did, but they'll never forget how you make them feel. I might be not quoting that 100% correctly, but something like that. And that is a really good way of looking at how we analyzed that piece, because it was a very short paragraph, but everybody, we, we broke into smaller groups and we had, we had a few lines then that we played around with and we had character names given to us. And we had just a few exercises that we did where we talked about what connotations we had with certain words or certain names and what feeling we had by reading a certain thing, what we walked away with. For a horror workshop, that was very important because horror is one of those genres that just you need to feel and you need to feel very deeply. And it has to build in a way for all of those elements to really hit home. But regardless of the genre that you write, you can take that lesson and you can carry it through to everything that you read in any genre that you write anyway. So that was the angle that we viewed it from. And I love that because everybody had a little bit of a different sense of 
the feeling that they that they had from different ways that they read it, but we all kind of took away a central message regardless. And it's kind of what people say, right? Once the book goes out, everybody will read it and they'll read it with their own lens. It'll be theirs. And that is still true. And maybe people won't always take exactly what you intend, but there are things that you can do in ways that you can read where you kind of pull together certain aspects of craft that will work regardless. And that's how we analyze that paragraph. I also love how readers can feel different things so strongly and be so convicted in this is what this meant, or, you know, they come up with theories of why an author might have done something or what their their breadcrumbing for you for later. And I just think that's such a beautiful thing within our, our craft and our art that, yes, it, it meant something to me, but it's going to reach someone through the page on the other side of the world and mean something entirely different for them. And that's how that is that story magic, you know, that living essence that we get to share with each other. And I love that we're going to talk a bit more about the craft of how we can have the emotion that we are hoping for, and how we can build tension for our goal, but it might hit differently anyway. Yeah, and I have such a stack of books here, I really don't think we're going to get through all of them. But I just went wild and have been penciling in all the little bits that excite me in the story. I will put a little disclaimer that most of the excerpts that I chose are closer to the front of the book. And it's not because I think those were better necessarily, but just because I didn't want to include any spoilers. So I did have other parts of texts that I thought were really fantastic showcases of really looking into craft. But because there's so many books and a lot of them are kind of newish, I didn't want to pick spoilery bits. So that's not to say that beginnings are better than anything or like need more bits of craft in them, which sometimes they do. But yes, just to mention that. I just wanted to talk a little bit about how we have mentioned that reading changed for us once we became writers and how sometimes if I'm reading with my eyes, my writer brain doesn't turn off. So if I'm reading as a reader, I often have to rely on audiobooks. However, when I'm annotating... I can't do it with a physical copy just because I'm slower with my eyes. But I do take notes in my notes app while I'm listening to the sentences that I really like the sound of, prose that I'm just like moved by. And you might find different ways of reading that help you as a writer. I absolutely love that you mentioned that. I'm so impressed that you can do that because when I listen to audiobooks, which I've lately been trying very hard to do, um, and some of them I've really loved. I do feel like I experience story in a different way. And the atmosphere is very different to when I read with my eyes. That's not to say that it's better or worse, but I do find it harder to make notes when I'm listening than when I'm reading, like on a line level. So I'm really impressed that you can do that. The notes that I take are different when I'm revising than when I'm drafting. Because when I'm revising, I have like the same way of saying things. And there are words that I just, that are my crutch words, you know, we all have them. And then you just hate them when you're trying to change them. You're like, I don't know how, how to say the word pressed in a different way. Like that is, <laughs> that is like, I think. <laughs> and it's just, when I'm looking for different ways to say something, that's when I'm like, oh, that's a brilliant way to say that. Or, oh, mm. this is a different way to structure a sentence to get what I mean. But I'm drafting right now. So now I'm just like, 
taking notes of stuff that I really like the sound of, not necessarily character arcs or mm. line level. Okay. The first book that I picked, I know this is one that you've read and that you also loved, is The Last Tale of the Flower Bride. You warned me that knowing your secret would destroy us. At first, it sat in our marriage like a blue-lipped ghost, hardly noticeable until the trick of the light drew it into focus. But you could always tell the days when it gnawed at my thoughts. You tried to comfort me. You stroked my face and curled my fingers to your heart. You said, if you pry, you'll destroy our marriage. But oh, my love, you lied. So there are so many things here and so many great bits of craft that are employed to really hook the reader. And because this is the prologue, this is really like the hooky kind of stuff, right? So the first line, you warned me that knowing your secret would destroy us. If you haven't read the back of the book and you don't know what the book is about, you immediately have a lot of questions. Who is the you? What is the secret? Did the secret destroy them? Does this person who's talking know the secret? And you just have so many things that you want to know. And I think secrets are one of those things that any writer in any genre can use as a hook. Because as human beings, we have to know. We have to know what the answer to a secret is. So if you allude to a secret of any kind in an opening, that is an immediate hook. And then it goes on to say, uh, at first it sat in our marriage like a blue-lipped ghost. So that blue-lipped ghost is, to me, such a beautiful turn of phrase that the first time that I read that, I actually physically sat up straight and I was like, oh, okay, I'm in. <laughs> like that was the thing that pulled me in. I liked the secret, but when I read the blue-lipped ghost, I, it was there for me. All right. There are certain words that are used, like you stroked my face you cur and curled my fingers to your heart. The stroking that elicits that kind of soft feeling. So you get the sense of their relationship before you even know anything about it. And then the curled, it's it feels like there are claws, but also like it's something that should be tender. And so you have this kind of juxtaposition of is this a soft story or is this going to be something that has teeth? And later on, there is a line somewhere further on about like the drawing of blood between the two of them. And that is also a surprising line. And so that there's a little bit of soft introduction in the words, which subconsciously you pick up that if you reread and go back to the beginning and you look at that, the, the author, whether consciously or not, is putting those little bits in there to prepare you and set you up for what's coming. And I think that's fantastic. And then the line that actually I think is the, the cleverest, cleverest thing here is, you said, if you pry, you'll destroy our marriage, but oh, my love, you lied. That sentence, if you pry, you'll destroy our marriage, you can put emphasis on any one of those words and it will change the meaning of the sentence. So if you pry, you'll destroy our marriage. If you pry, you'll destroy our marriage. If you pry, you'll destroy our marriage, and so on. And so when you get to the sentence you lied, you have absolutely no idea what the other person lied about. And now you know that there's the secret. You know that this thing either did or didn't, you know, you, you just are in a place where you don't know if this destruction actually happened. And it sets up this whole mystery which is, in fact, as you read the story, continues to be a mystery for us. And I think with that very tiny paragraph of a prologue, it does absolutely everything to set expectations for the reader. It gives you a sense of the prose. It hooks you to understand that this is a story about secrets. It's a story about a mystery. It's a story about both tenderness and, I want to say something monstrous, but not really, sort of things that can be sharp and also things that can be soft and how those two can coexist and what that means in the context of love. The marriage like built on 
lies and whether that means it's going to be a devastation or whether they're going to be able to weather it it's it's really setting up a lot in such a short amount of time it really did it was a surprising book if you haven't read it I think it is definitely one to read and it's a standalone it does it is a book that haunts me still and it's not not my usual genre of fantasy like I I prefer most of the time I read quite like high fantasy, second world fantasy, but it was just so beautiful and so cleverly done that it is worth reading it just to see how she told the story. And it's not just because she plays with timelines as well. So it's not just this is how it starts. This is how it ends. And it just opens up your mind to being like, how can I tell my story best? And does it do best by starting at the beginning and then going to the end or is the middle where I want to start or do I want to start in the end and come back so it's it's a beautiful piece to read and think about those things as a writer as well the other thing I will say about not necessarily only this story and we'll see it as we go through our other examples as well is that it is a showcase to me of the power of revision because it's not like I've seen the first draft of any of these stories, but a lot of the word choice and the clever spin on how there's sort of subtle hints in things that you wouldn't pick up as you're reading a story for the first time. If you go back and you read it, you see that those are turns of phrase or little hints that are dropped in because either the author knows what's going to happen and subconsciously just wrote them in there or they intentionally went and put them in there but it makes the story so much more layered and it just feels tighter and more I want to say like I was a kid my math teacher used to say uh, when you do a math problem it's like onion skins <laughs> and you kind of have to go from the outside like this is this is a weird analogy but like you know you go from the outside of, of whatever the sum is and you work your way to the middle it feels a little bit like onion skins in the sense that you start reading and you're reading sort of surface level and you get closer and closer and closer by the time you get to the middle and understand the story there's so many other layers that you've passed through which are still part of what you're reading and when you go back and read at the beginning you read with the flavor of understanding what's in the middle and it changes that like outside flavor. I don't know if I'm making any sense now with this food. It's yeah, it's making a lot of sense. It's beautiful. Yeah, and that's why I love reading books over again when I have gone through them and I'm like, this is, I want to write like this. Mm. And then you go back and you see, oh, that that's how they wove this in earlier. This is why I felt like I figured it out as a reader when really they were leading me to figure it out the mm. whole time. Mm. What I also love about word choice on a line level is that it's world building in such a powerful way without the info dump, you know? So just talking about the feeling of like the curled hand, well, that could be tender or it could be claws, which becomes important later. Or talking about lies or if you pry, those are all very different verbs that are important. And we often don't really think about it until we have to do it about how important those word choices are and I wouldn't say that I did that in my first draft but it is something that that does come in revision okay do you want to share one of your choices of excerpt yeah so I have the wolf and the woodsman by Ava Reed I think she is just such a talented writer I want to be Ava Reed when I grow up so this is just the first line from her book chapter one 
The trees have to be tied down by sunset. When the woodsmen come, they always try to run. And then I think, okay, we've got trees that run. Who are these woodsmen? Why are they so so ominous that even the trees are trying to run away? And why is it sunset? So it already feels dark. The practical side of me is like, how do you tie down a tree? Yeah, maybe with ropes and some <laughs> some pickaxe or something. <laughs> and this whole book, I was just taking notes on her word choice. And it is a dark fantasy, but I found it wasn't as dark as I was expecting. So I know a lot of people are weary of reading it. And I'm just like, no, you need to read it. I mean, in the beginning, a guy gets his arm chopped off. So it's a little bit like, oh, that's that's a little bit gory. But it isn't the whole book that's gory. But I remember she'd use words like carp pail or the underbelly of a fish, which aren't necessarily beautiful, but they are very vivid. And so you can already tell that this book is going to be gritty. It's going to be like an underdog and it's going to be dark and it's not going to be beautiful all the time. But then when the beautiful moments come, you have a greater appreciation because the whole world is so stark. I love that. I actually have not read The Wolf and the Woodsman. I did pick for one of my choices, um, Juniper and Thorn. I don't know if we'll get to that, but one of the reasons that I picked it is exactly her word choice. She's just so clever with all of the words that she picks for descriptions. I love that. Okay, I have a middle grade, which is it's sort of upper middle grade, and it's one of my absolute favorites. It's called The Blackthorn Key by Kevin Sands. And there are actually two excerpts in here that I thought were just so clever. And I don't think they give anything away. The first one is really the very first page. That's not going to give anything away. The other one is a little bit further in. So it starts. I found it. Master Benedict said he wasn't the least bit surprised. According to him, there were several times over the past three years when he was sure I'd finally discovered it. Yet it wasn't until the day before my 14th birthday that it came to me so clearly I thought God himself had whispered in my ear. My master believes occasions like this should be remembered. So, as he ordered, I've written down my formula. My master suggested the title. The Stupidest Idea in the Universe by Christopher Rowe, apprentice to Master Benedict Blackthorne, apothecary. Method of manufacture. Snoop through your master's private notes. Find a recipe, its words locked behind a secret code, and decipher it. Next, steal the needed ingredients from your master's stores. Finally, and this is the most important step, go to your best friend, a boy of stout character and poor judgment equal to your own, and speak these words. Let's build a cannon. So I think there are so many clever things. This is just literally one page. The I found it, you immediately think, well, what did you find? Who is this person? What did they find? Master Benedict said, and I think the master already gives you a kind of sense of place, time, and what the world is. Um, and as we read on, we get this, we get the idea of, you know, what is a master of and that the person speaking is apprentice to him. We get um, the day before my 14th birthday. So we get a sense of his age. And then the stupidest idea in the universe, we already get a chuckle halfway down the first page, which is fun. And because of that, and we know that the, that his master suggested that title automatically as a reader, I like his master because I think, well, he's got a sense of humor. Um, and we read down to the end of a page and realize that this kid has done something really incredibly stupid by being clever. And the guy still had some way to laugh about it. So you get a sense of the characters very quickly, which I think is incredibly smart. We also get the main character's name without anybody having to say it because we get it in the title of that uh, piece. 
and we get his relationship to the master because he's written underneath there, Apprentice to Master Benedict. The Secret Code, I thought was clever because this book actually is, it's a series and it has a lot to do with secret codes. It's a little bit of a middle grade version of like the Da Vinci Code. It's a very like Dan Brown style type book, but for kids. And I, I love it for that reason. It's it's so clever. And so just by those words, it gives you some very important elements to the story without you even realizing it because you're still chuckling from the thing that came two lines before. And then we get a boy of stout character. So we already get this feeling of what the supporting character is going to be like. And we get a sense of the three main people who are going to be, you know, spotlighting in the story. And we like them already, even though they do incredibly silly things. I was just laughing hearing you read it out loud because I haven't read this book, but it it just sounds fun. And also like, what are they going to do building a canon? Like, <laughs> what are they getting up to? So, and then there's another excerpt which comes a little bit later, and I won't say what's happening in the book. I'm just going to read this piece, and then I'm going to tell you why I thought it was, it was really clever. So, we're nearing the end of a chapter, and it says, When I finally finished, three hours past nightfall, I barred the front door, shuttered the windows, then crawled under the shop counter to my palliasse and fell fast asleep. A noise woke me. At first, I thought it came from the street. Then I heard it again, from the other side of the counter. A ceramic jar clinked against the shelf. I'd sealed up the shop before I'd gone to sleep. I hadn't barred the back door to the workshop so Master Benedict could return, but it was locked, and only my master and I knew where the key was hidden. And Master Benedict always entered the house through the workshop and went straight upstairs. He never came to the front. But there it was again. A footfall, the gentle creak of the floorboards. Someone was here. And then the chapter ends there. And he goes on to starting into the next chapter, I reached under the straw, groping for my knife. My heart hammered into my ribs. A plan. I needed a plan. I'll skip over a bit. And it ends with, he pulls out this knife and he grips it as if it were Excalibur. In reality, it was just a two-inch blade, loose in the handle and dull as a millstone. The thing had a hard time slicing apples. So that's the, that's the quote. And that's so funny. So, you know, it's serious and it's a scary thing happening, but you still chuckle. What I thought was clever about this is... That line when he says, you know, he goes underneath the shop counter to sleep on to go to sleep. Technically, most people would think that's a good place to end a chapter because you're going to sleep and then you go into the next chapter and somebody's entering. Obviously, he makes a very clever choice to then include the piece where somebody is breaking into the shop and it ends with someone is here. One of the things that I picked up, and I may have said this before here, I'm not sure, um, was actually from a Dan Brown masterclass where he said, when you end a chapter, don't end where it feels natural. Go four sentences before or four sentences after and put that as the end of your chapter because that is the thing, as Courtney would say, it slaps. And I think what he did here was really clever because he made it slap. And then you go on to the next bit and you still feel that build intention. You still feel, you're still in his body. We're going straight into, you know, my heart hammered into my ribs. He pulls out this knife. You feel all of the things that he is feeling, all of the fear and the way that it's building. And he knows that he is being ridiculous holding this knife that can do nothing. But you still feel that desperation in it. Um, I also like the cadence of the sentences and how everything builds in a way that you feel that tension as you read it. So I thought that was just one of those kind of, kind of clever instances where just as a reader, you're turning the page and you're not thinking about it because you're getting absorbed. But as a writer, you can pause at the, those moments and think about, well, why do I feel compelled to turn? The, I was going to read to the end of the chapter, but now I flicked over because I, I have to know who actually was coming into the workshop, right? And those 
pieces are done on purpose, right? Like, well, who, who's in the workshop? Like, is he going to be okay? Or like, is it his master that is like playing a trick on him? Is it like someone bad trying to steal something? And you're right. You just, you have to change. You're like, okay, I'll read like a little bit more. And then you end up reading a whole chapter and then it ends in the same way. And then you just have to keep going. And as a, as a writer, there are some people that do like to give you a rest at the end of a chapter and like just tie it up. But then there are also different instances where you want them to just keep reading and keep going and enjoy the story for as long as they can. And I do think that really depends, right, on the type of book that you're writing. If you need people to kind of have a pause and just let some of the things that you've said settle because they're heavy, it's okay, I think, if you're if you're not trying to write a page turner. But in this case, I think it was well done because this is the type of book that is meant to be a page turner. Okay, I actually lent a bunch of my books to my sister because she said, oh, I need some books. I'm like, well, you've come to the right place. So I've looked up some quotes online. But my next book was One Dark Window by Rachel Gaelic. And I love that in the physical copy. So I I also listened to this one on audiobook and I thought it was really well narrated. But in the physical copy, there are sort of, I don't know what they're called. They're a type of poem, a limerick, limerick style. And a lot of them are the monster, right? And they're just so eerie and they're so foreshadowing that they immediately give you like this dark ominous vibe and and I did take a quote down and I don't know I don't know if this was from one of those little excerpts or if this was somewhere else in the book but I'll read it anyway there once was a girl he murmured clever and good who tarried in shadow in the depths of the wood there also was a king a shepherd by his crook who reigned over magic and wrote the old book the two were together so the two were the same the girl, the king, and the monster they became. That isn't from Elspeth's point of view. It's sort of, it's a separate point of view to Elspeth's first person point of view. And it just does so much world building, gives so much atmosphere, and is also, they're going to become a monster together. Like there's this other almost deity that has powers. He wrote this old book is it a book of magic? What is it? What is it about? And it's just those, those little excerpts have been haunting me. I read this book in December and it's now September. And I still think about this book almost daily. She's really excellent with atmosphere. I think Rachel Giddick, just so smart. Okay. I have one, which is also excellent with atmosphere and it is Ryan Lasala's The Honeys. It is one of my favorite books I've ever read. The prose in here is so incredible. It's YA horror. And I'm going to read, again, this is the opening. There's so many, I'm not going to give it away. I'll just read it and then we'll talk about it after. My sister wakes me with a whisper. I love you, Mars. Her voice crumbles in her throat. In the moonlight from my window, I can see the gleam of tears streaked over her jaw. She hovers so close I can smell her. Not her usual shampoo, but an unright odor. The rich sweetness of decay, like molding flowers. Caroline, you're back. I'm confused. The summer night swells with cricket song and the curtains billow against her hunched form like the outside is trying to take her back. I used to leave that window open all the time when we still snuck out onto the balcony connecting our bedrooms. On nights like tonight, I used to wait for Caroline to tap, tap, tap on the glass, a book and a flashlight ready. But Caroline and I haven't met on our balcony in a long, long time. It's her, though. Only Caroline would know I still keep the window unlocked just in case. 
Caroline, I ask the shadow, the overripe stink. No answer. Why are you home? I'm too sleepy to hide the hope in my voice. Despite everything from this past year, I'm happy to see my sister. I've waited so long for her to come back for me. She lifts something above her head. I recognize the shape, the catch of soft moonlight on rough metal. It's my iron sundial. She must have grabbed it from my bookcase. I use it as a bookend because it's so heavy. She stifles a sob, heaving the sundial high. I reach for my phone on the nightstand. Caroline, what's going on? Forgive me, she sobs. Caroline brings the sundial down on my hand, crushing nail and bone into metal and glass. I'm about to scream when she lifts it again. And this time, she brings it down on my head. <laughs> Nadine is horrified. That took a turn. <laughs> my yeah. goodness. I was, I was like feeling like, okay, like, is her sister really back? But then, like, it, it turned when she said, forgive me. And then I'm like, oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> so Mars is her brother. And I don't remember exactly, but I think that their pronouns pronouns might be they, them. I don't remember. I read it a while ago. But the things that I loved about this this opening were many. A lot of the highlights that I made when I first read it were word choice highlights, which I thought were really clever because as the book goes on, there's they are words that are chosen specifically for the way that the the mystery unfolds um, and all of the horror that is involved with that. So things like the rich sweetness of decay, mo like molding flowers, um, the overripe stink, all of those words, they're really, really clever. And then my sister wakes me with a whisper. You immediately feel a kind of kinship for the two of them, you know, you you feel safe in this story because it feels like this should be a good thing. Maybe something's happening, but, you know, they'll be safe with each other. And that is obviously not the case. There's a line that says, despite everything that's happened over this past year. So you have the questions of well, what are the things that have happened? And then there's a piece that goes in a long, long time. And I love when writers do this. With the, We also have the tap, tap, tap on the glass, the repetition that comes in places where they're not necessarily 100% needed, but they lend a certain element of almost vulnerability and truth to the way that the character is seeing what's happening. And so I think when Mars sees Caroline coming back and you see this kind of tap, 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 or they hear it, that's a, a way of kind of tapping into the tapping into the senses in a way that uh, grounds the reader. And then also with the long, long time, that feels very childlike, um, you know, a long, long time ago, but also feels horrific because of what's happening. This this sense of like a long, long time ago, like what what is it that's been happening in the space between them? We obviously know something isn't right, but we still don't expect this awful thing. And then she says, forgive me before she hurts him. And so she obviously doesn't want to hurt him or them. And of course, you're going to read on after that point. It's fantastic all the way, but it's too long for me to keep reading. There's so many, so many lines and words and things that I love that I think was so cleverly done here. I highly recommend that you read this book if you haven't done so already. The Honeys by Ryan Osala. I want to go read that right now, just from that short little bit. I'll read it and then I'll send you my reactions as Please I read. Please do. Please do. It's just so well done. It's really good. I don't have the book here with me, but I thought Tahara Mayfi's Shatter Me was a very interesting read for me as a writer. I mean, it's such a good book. It's such a good series anyway, but her use of the strike through lines to show her inner dialogue and her inner thought. There's a foreword in the book saying that Juliet is very anxious and doesn't trust herself and her thoughts and thinks that she makes things up. 
And that is so the crossed out thoughts are done on purpose. So you get a picture into her mind and the way that she thinks, because it's like a journal, and then she crosses them out and says what she what she means or what she wants others to think what she means. And the crossed out lines get less and less as we go through the book as she goes through that journey of finding herself and finding her agency and finding her confidence. And she also does this thing where she, the way where the words are on a page, like something might say drop down and the words will drop down, but it'll be like D O W N. And yeah, that's you very, don't usually that's, see that. That's right? that's a, that's a, like a, poetic choice right it's poets do that in their poems like if you look at the structure of a poem it it is telling a story without having to say thing because you have so so few words to say the things that you want to say that you can use structure to do that and I think that's so clever of her to do that because as writers we're often told like you structure a thing like this and this is like when you're writing a novel and sometimes I think that's a waste I think there are other craft things that you can do and and we do use this we use white space we think about white space a lot right you have to think about white space as a writer and we're on a podcast now so we obviously can't like hold things up and show what that white space looks like but the next time you're reading as a writer do look at that look at a page and think about how your eyes are moving along the page as you read and where you want people to be turning the page is where you don't have huge blocks of text so you have to try and balance those things. And I think that's something she does really, really well. Yeah. And use of line breaks when you want to mm-hmm. like make a, make a point or you really want the reader to, to notice this thing. And that was a book I read with my eyes and I just thought it was brilliant. And I was able to go through it because I was like, this is just so clever. I didn't know that I could do this in a novel. Or... So that really opened up my eyes as a writer. But I'd be interested to try it as an audiobook and see how that was narrated because I'm not sure how you would narrate that I think you have to kind of act act out those kind of drawn out pauses and like use inflection and tone to get it right but I I also think like one of my faults when I started out and I don't know maybe I still do this when I learn a new thing I overuse it a little bit and I have to kind of reel it in so also just to be aware of like how to balance and not use line breaks all the time or like not use M dashes or not M dashes. What's the other one? N dashes. Ha, I learned a thing from Marie. Did I do it right? The long one. No. You know, the, the long interrupting one, is, one. The, is, is the M dash. You had it, you had it right the first time. <laughs> I, I didn't learn it from Marina. I learned it wrong. <laughs> all right. Well, now you all have it right. Okay. So I'm going to do my next excerpt. And it's from a book that I have not yet finished. I'm reading it now at the moment in life. Um, It's called Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow. It's made a big splash. I think a lot of people are reading it now. And this is close to the beginning where Sam is in the train station and he's just seen an old friend, uh, Sadie, and he's called out to her and she didn't turn around. So he keeps going. Um, And there's all these things happening around. There's a crowd. She's in the crowd. She's looking at something and he's trying to get her attention. Adjacent to Sadie was a stand selling $6 fruit shakes. The blender had begun to whir, diffusing the scent of citrus and strawberries through the musty subterranean air, just as Sam had first called her name. Sadie Green, he called out again. Still, she didn't hear him. He quickened his pace as much as he could. When he walked quickly, he counterintuitively felt like a person in a three-legged race. Sadie! Sadie! 
he felt foolish. Sadie Miranda Green, you have died of dysentery. So this is the absolute beginning of the book. You have absolutely no context for what that means. And it is just such a surprising thing to read. And you think this man is at a crowded station. He's stuck in this crowd. And he yells this out to her. <laughs> we find out just a, a little bit later that she actually did hear him the first time. And once he yells that, she has to pay attention. And it's just so funny. Um, and there's a reason that he says that specifically. But now you're just so hooked in that moment. Okay, so what was clever about this? Um, the first things, I really love the use of the senses here. The blender that begins to whir. The whir already gives you a sense of sound, even if it's not telling you the sound exactly. Um, then the scents, the citrus, the strawberries through the musty subterranean air. We all know the smell of like the, the underground. And then those fresh smells of the citrus and the strawberries are two scents that most people know very clearly. And so I think that is a, a good kind of grounding in the body. And then we get a hint here, which says, when he walked quickly, he counterintuitively felt like a person in a three-legged race. We're actually not paying much attention to Sam's movement in this moment because he's we're paying attention to the fact that he's trying to get to the skull and he's yelling out to her and, he, and then he says this crazy thing. And we, I almost really forgot about that line, but it's a big part of the story. It's a big part of how they meet and all the things that are important for how they kind of come together and move apart because he has to walk with a cane. Um, and when he refuses to walk with a cane, then he struggles. And I won't say more on that, but it's just a good, a good way of dropping in a piece of information without giving you tons of backstory on a thing, you now know that there's something wrong with his gait. But more importantly, we know that there's something amiss in their relationship. She's obviously ignoring him because he's yelling very loudly in the station. And then he yells this ridiculous thing, which there must be some story behind. And we all want to know what that is. I thought that was very clever. And a lot of the book is kind of quirky, funny in that way. I love that. And when you said the three-legged race, I, I actually stopped and I thought, oh, that's an interesting word choice. So mm. I'm glad that you pointed it out again and saying that it will play come into play later. Yeah. And that makes me want to read it. You should. It's, it's actually just so excellent. It's such a good book. And one of the other things, and I, I don't, I, I can't really showcase that uh, in on a podcast, but um, the structure of this book is done very cleverly. It's, uh, it's got all these sections, and then it's got a part where like, they, they, they make games, they make computer games. And there's a game that they make, which is kind of to do with mirroring, but in, in life. And then the way that the structure, the chapters are structured in that section where they're making that game. So each section is is titled by either the name of the game or something to do with what leads to that game. And the story is told from Sadie's perspective and Sam's perspective, but in third person. And in the mirroring chapters, the chapters are like 1A, 1B where each part of them, like they each get a piece of the chapter and the way that they're experiencing the same thing is mirrored and flipped. And we get to see how their relationship evolves in that way. And it's just, it's kind of a love story, but it's not the sort of love story that you expect it to be. And I think it's really brilliant. I haven't reached the end yet. I'm so curious how it's going to end. It's so smart. That sounds so cute. And I love love stories that are a little bit unexpected. I've read a lot of books with like strong female leads, you know, the super hot male lead and lots of witty banter, probably enemies to lovers. And I love all those things. But recently I read 
Paladin's Grace by T. Kingfisher. And I listened to it on audiobook. But I just loved how the characters were in their 30s. So the the one is in her early 30s. And then the male character is in his late 30s. And they've both had full lives before they meet each other. And their pasts play a huge role in the story as well. But they are just so awkward. And you get their inner thoughts about like how they're how they're trying to think of the right thing to say. And then they always say the wrong thing. And they're just sort of bumbling over their words with each other. And it's just so endearing that you can't help but like cheer for them. And they overcome big things in this book. It It's part of a trilogy, but the, each book is a standalone. Like it follows different characters in each book. So it does it does come together. But what I love about T. Kingfisher's writing, and Hannah Witten does this really well too, is they use swear words for world building. So in T. Kingfisher's book, there were some swears like God's teeth or saint's teeth or saint's breath, because those are the deities that are important to them. And the saint actually died. So one of the saints died. and That was like a big deal. Hannah Witten, she'll have like shitting kings in for the throne or for the wolf. And she also does that in Foxglove King. And it's just always such a funny way of world building for me. It's so clever. It tells me what is sacred and what is being used in this way of frustration without telling me a whole history about the gods or the kings or the deities or whatever. And I just... I love that when I see it in books. And I think For the Throne was the first one I noticed it in. But now I notice it when I read. I think those are some of the best ways to world build. Like taking a real life aspect of something, we do swear in those ways. And how can you fit it into the world that you are building and make it realistic and feel authentic? Okay, I have a very popular book called The Song of Achilles by Madeline Miller. Uh, I might have heard of that one. <laughs> really? <laughs> okay, so I've chosen a piece which probably is not the most popular part of the story. But I'm going to read it and then I'm going to tell you why I picked it. Beyond this, I remember little more than scattered images from my life then. My father frowning on his throne, a cunning toy horse I loved, my mother on the beach, her eyes turned towards the Asian. In this last memory, I'm skipping stones for her, plink, plink, plink across the skin of the sea. She seems to like the way the ripples look, dispersing back to glass, or perhaps it is the sea itself she likes. At her temple, a starburst of white gleams like bone, the scar from the time her father hit her with a hilt of a sword. Her toes poke up from the sand where she buried them, and I am careful not to disturb them as I search for rocks. I choose one and fling it out, glad to be good at this. It is the only memory I have of my mother, and so golden that I am almost sure I have made it up. After all, it was unlikely for my father to have allowed us to be alone together, his simple son and simpler wife. And where are we? I do not recognize the beach, the view of coastline. So much time has passed since then. Okay, so of course, this is a story of Patroclus and Achilles' love. And that is really kind of central to what is what the story is about. But the reason that I chose this is I feel like so much of who Patroclus is, is stemming from a tenderness that 
comes from early scenes like this. And there are very few of them, but they're done so well that you see it in, like he's careful not to move the stones around his mom's toes. And he wasn't allowed to spend a lot of time with her, but she was the only person who was ever gentle around him. And he valued that. And we see that he values that. And he takes a lot of that gentleness with him throughout his life. And then we get to see the cruelty of their world in a way that is not kind of thrown in your face. His mother is called Simple. It's very clear that she has some kind of brain injury from being whacked over the head by her father who hit her with a sword. And, and we get to see a lot of his kindness. Um, and we see his loneliness, which I think is done so well in tiny moments like this, where we begin to understand what frames his character and how he grows into the person that he is and how he's able to love the way that he loves. So the things that he remembers as well, the frown of his father on the throne, it's it's a very specific, he, he's looking at emotion. And we narrow in on the fact that it's he, the man is on the throne. Um, this is his father, but all he sees of his father is his, the, the way that his father is unhappy with him. A cunning toy horse that I loved. So as a child, you have a toy that you're always attached to. The fact that, you know, we see what this world is to them, the, the types of toys that they have. And, the, and, and then it's called cunning and how that later on plays into what I won't ruin comes later in the story. Uh, I loved the skin of the sea. That's also also like the, um, the SS alliteration there, uh, the plink, plink, plink. So a lot of this, when you read it out loud as well, feels very lyrical and also feels very sad. And I think that that comes partly in the word choice, but also in the cadence of the sentences, which is something that reading as a writer, I think it's very important to read things out loud, read your own work out loud, read books out loud that you love, because you get a sense of how to string sentences together in a way that um, achieves the rhythm that you're looking for to create emotion. Where So part of it comes from word choice and the other part of it comes from how you find that rhythm, in my opinion. And I think that's something you're very good at. And that was something that you helped me a lot with. Um, because I'd be like, I I can't tell what it sounds like. Can you please read this? And then you would be like, try switching. These two sound the same. Try switching these two up or whatever. One thing that stood out to me in that um, excerpt, I, I actually listened to Song of Achilles on audiobook, and it was beautiful. Narrator is excellent. If you haven't read it and you like audiobooks, I would recommend this book. But I noticed that the memory he felt the memory was too good too golden touched or something he said so he felt like he probably made it up and that's just showing me that he doesn't trust himself or doesn't believe everything that he thinks and also that his world must be quite harsh if a good memory feels like it could not be a reality for him and that's yeah. a lot to learn about his character in a short amount of time yeah, I agree. It's it's so powerful how that short paragraph tells you about his character and tells you about the world in a way that you're so focused on this moment that you take it in, but it's not you're not being whacked over the head with world building or anything else. Do you want to share another excerpt? Well, I'm just looking at my notes that I made here. One of my other books that I love craft-wise and who I'd love to write like 
is uh, the Ember in, An Ember in the Ashes series by Saba Tahir. I read this one when I was revising and just the way that she writes and reframes sentences was very helpful for me. But I think one thing that she does really well or is a very Saba Tahir thing is the internal thoughts for each of the characters because it is in first person, but they also have a lot of internal thoughts. And those were very obvious on um, audiobook as well as in the physical book. And I actually read the ebook as well. It was depending on what was available for my library. And I learned a lot from her doing that and was able to incorporate that in my writing as a third person. Like the last book I wrote was third person. But then I was able to include that closeness, that close proximity by including those internal thoughts the in italics right and that's just another structural thing that you can choose as a writer to bring that in and her books were in first person but it just I felt like I was in their head and I understood their motivations much more with those internal thoughts than if I didn't have them yeah I flew through those books I thought they were so excellent I remember when you were reading them and and you were telling me all your thoughts about what was going to happen and I was like I can't say anything and also, like, she's so good at so many things, like her action scenes are also fast paced. And if you look at them on the page, you can see her use of white space or not white space to force you to read faster. And then her romantic scenes are also building tension with the internal thoughts and the physical sensations in the body. And what are the characters thinking and not and hoping wishing they could say but don't so the reader knows what they really feel i think she's just an excellent writer and uh i want to be her one day when i grow i want to be sabat to hear when i grow up you're gonna have a split personality between ava reed and sabat <laughs> and myself i don't know how this is gonna work maybe i can meet them one day i don't know if i'd be able to to like talk i i think that would be like a please sign my book and and just like I'd be like the the awkward couple in um, Paladin's Grace. I'd have all of these thoughts in my mind, and then I would just be like, Bleh, not know what to say. <laughs> okay, I think we have probably time for two more. So hmm, now I have to pick just well, two. Well, you we you can, can t- take the two more. I think I'm I okay. think I'm done. So all right, I could talk about books forever, but if you have two specific ones you want okay, to share, I will do uh, "The Name of the Wind" by Patrick Rothfuss, and this is uh, another opening. It's called "A Silence of Three Parts." It was night again. The Waystone Inn lay in silence, and it was a silence of three parts. The most obvious part was a hollow, echoing quiet made by things that were lacking. If there had been a wind, it would have sighed through the trees, set the inn sign creaking on its hooks and brushed the silence down the road like trailing autumn leaves. If there had been a crowd, even a handful of men inside the inn, they would have filled the silence with conversation and laughter, the clatter and clamour one expects from a drinking house during the dark hours of night. If there had been music. But no, of course, there was no music. In fact, there were none of these things, and so the silence remained. Inside the waystone, a pair of men huddled at one corner of the bar. They drank with quiet determination, avoiding serious discussions of troubling news. In doing this, they added a small, sudden silence to the larger hollow one. It made an alloy of sorts, a counterpart. The third silence was not an easy thing to notice. If you listened for an hour, you might begin to feel it in the wooden floor underfoot and in the rough, splintering barrels behind the bar. It was in the weight of the black stone hearth that held the heat of a long dead fire. It was in the slow back and forth of a white linen cloth rubbing along the grains of the bar. 
and it was in the hands of the man who stood there, polishing a stretch of mahogany that already gleamed in the lamplight. The man had true red hair, red as flame. His eyes were dark and distant, and he moved with a subtle certainty that comes from knowing many things. The Waystone Inn was his, just as the third silence was his. This was appropriate, as it was the greatest silence of the three. Wrapping the others inside itself, it was deep and wide as autumn's ending. It was heavy as a great river-smooth stone. It was the patient, cut-flower sound of a man who was waiting to die. Oh my gosh. That's that slaps. laughs line. <laughs> yeah, that slaps. All right. What are the things that work really well here? Many things. Many, many. Firstly, the magic of threes. This is a thing that works basically anywhere. It's not only a storytelling thing, but it does work uh, in many stories. The, the three little pigs, the three bears, the, I don't know, the three bully goats gruff, all of those things. I love threes. Yeah. So I think they Alexandra work. Bracken also talked about she uses the threes quite a lot. And we saw it in some previous excerpts, the tap, 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 the plink, 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 all of those. There's something just very satisfying about reading about a thing in threes. So that's the first thing. It makes it feel very poetic. Also, the writing is very poetic. You get a, a good sense of ominousness. Is ominousness a word? You feel ominous <laughs> by, by a lot of the word choice and the way that everything kind of feels slow and building as you read. I, I found it very intriguing. And I also felt like it was a very fairy tale-esque, dark vibe to the story. So it feels very much like epic fantasy. You already get a sense of that as you open it up. And you get a sense of all these secrets where there is a silence wrapping other silences. It feels like a blanket of secrets to me, which is something we saw earlier when we had that opening about secrets. Immediately we think, well, now I want to know what the secret is. Um, there's a lot of alliteration here as well. Drinking house during the dark hours. The clatter and clamor, crowd and conversation, like little things like that, which kind of help your your tongue to flow around the words as you're reading them. Also, the way that it's set up, it's done in these three paragraphs. Everything structurally and all the information is all presented to you in a very neat package of, I'm showing you this thing in many layers. Here it is. And you take it and you breathe it in and feel like, whoa, okay, I'm in for a ride. And what well, I do. And I was in for a ride. It's a very thick book. It has like zero margins to leave notes in. Just look at that. It's so painful. <laughs> Oh my gosh. But other than that, it's excellent. And I love that you mentioned it feels like fairy tale with that epic fantasy. And there is a different storytelling voice that you can hear with that, with the third person and the word choice and talking about the three wins, right? Yes. What's your final choice? I have so many here. I still have The Whispering Dark, A Bright Ray of Darkness, Juniper and Thorn, Alone with You in the Ether, and gosh, what's that one at the bottom? Oh, more. Uh, Liddy, which is so fun. It's a very old book uh, by Catherine Patterson. I'm just naming them so people can go and have a look at them because I won't get through them all. Uh, and Pursuit by Joyce Carol Oates. But the one that I'm going to pick is Divine Rivals by Rebecca this Ross. Is, I love this book. And I will just do a tiny piece of this one. So beautifully done, this whole story. It is from, not the prologue, but the first chapter called Sworn Enemies. And it's the first paragraph of that. Iris dashed through the rain with a broken high heel and a tattered trench coat. Hope was beating wildly in her chest, granting her speed and luck as she crossed the tram tracks downtown. 
She had been anticipating this day for weeks, and she knew she was ready, even soaked, limping, and hungry. Okay, every single sentence in this paragraph has a job, and that's what I think is just so clever about this. Iris dashed through the rain with a broken high heel and a tattered trench coat. So this already tells you something about her character. I, as a person, never dash. If I'm going to miss the bus, I will miss the bus. <laughs> I will be late. <laughs> I would rather. I, that's why I leave early, because I will not run for the, for the thing. <laughs> I used to be the person who ran for the thing. And then I was like, you know what? No. So unless like my life depended on it, which maybe her life depends on it. Uh, and I will not give anything away. The next line, hope was beating wildly in her chest. That clause is it's so unexpected that that hope that hope is doing this thing, I think it's clever. Granting her speed and luck as she crossed the tram tracks downtown. So that, that alliteration is also very trippy off the tongue, which feels good. She had been anticipating this day for weeks and she knew she was ready. And so immediately you are thinking, what's the day? What is she ready for? What are these things that are going to happen? Even soaked, limping, and hungry. How is she hungry? We had this prologue where we had a little bit of a peek into her life, which didn't seem like it was going to be hard for her. She had this one thing that she needed to do uh, in the prologue. And we wonder how she went from that to this moment. So I think that, that those four lines do so much work. And it's it feels, as you read it, it feels effortless. But as a writer, to look in at that and see what each of those bits are doing, I love that. I think it, it, it's so clever and it, it's not like slap you in the face clever, right? It's like it does all the things that it's supposed to do and it does it very elegantly. I'm also really grounded in that broken high heel. Like for one, no, I don't like to dash, but I also would not like to dash in one heel and one broken and trying to keep my balance from the rain it sounds like it was raining have right you ever had like a wet stocking you know like it's so yeah like so she's running and toes <laughs> I assume she's wearing stockings she's gonna be running like that with across tram tracks heel. too exactly. like it's not like, oh. yeah and you're feeling all of those things without being told what the terrain is like you just know it's across tram tracks and you fill all the rest of those things in which again is an, another thing that is it's it's smart because you don't need to tell the reader everything readers will fill in the bits that you don't tell them if you give them enough scaffolding and I think that can be really difficult as writers sometimes you want to give readers everything that you see but even the things that you see are not necessarily going to be what other people see and I wonder as we're talking through these excerpts what people who are listening are picturing and thinking about picking the sentences apart, if they picked up different parts that resonated with them, different things that struck them as a hook that felt either lyrical or not, um, and what kind of emotion they were left with that might have been different to what we were left with. That would be really interesting. And I'd love for anyone to message me or message us about that and have that conversation. Yeah. Because um, we often talk about books that we love, but talking about the craft of the books that we love is also just, that's a special writer love language, mm. right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I think we have reached snack level. Tell me what you. have you been snacking on this week? Mm. What have I been snacking on? Oh, I... I will, I haven't been snacking on anything terribly exciting, but I did have a very amazing curry, which my father-in-law made, 
uh, he's been visiting and he's just gone uh, back to Africa. And he made the most delicious curry for us before he left. And he was so proud of it, rightly so, because it was absolutely wonderful. Uh, I ate too, way too much of it. And then I just lay down because I couldn't move. <laughs> so that is my snack. That sounds delicious. It I haven't delicious. had a, I haven't had curry in a long time. So I need to. I'm trying to think. We went out for brunch today just with our little nuclear family. And... Um, my kids were super excited. We have been letting them order their food for as long as I can remember so that they get used to speaking to adults and not just looking at me all the time. But I had this delicious breakfast bowl that had some roasted potatoes and it had onions and tomatoes and eggs and then a, this delicious béarnaise sauce, which I could never make. That's the one thing when we go out to eat, I order things that I can't make, right? Because <laughs> otherwise I could just make it at home. So that was very tasty. and had the green onions on top. I always think of you with green onions because you like to put them on stuff. So that is true. <laughs> All right. So I think we have to say goodbye. Which we do. Sad. Yeah. All right. You know what? I'm going to say be brave because I have an ending. Oh, excellent. <laughs> I think. <laughs> All right, be brave. Stay beastly. And everybody, go tell Courtney how much you love her. Aww. Yeah, I made you do it. But also, <laughs> I know you do love her. I do love her. Love you, Courtney. And all our beasties. Mm-hmm.